Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the place to get your digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are hundreds of thousands of titles to choose from in a wide variety of genres, and you can play them on just about any digital listening device, whether it's your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever. And here's the big deal, everybody. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Go get yourself Room, the runaway best-selling novel by Emma Donahue, or how about some history? Go get a free download of Cleopatra, A Life by Stacey Schiff, or get yourself a classic of American literature like A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. And if you get one, if you go get the free download, it helps the show. It helps me make a few bucks. To download your free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. You can't get better than free. It's a terrific deal. Available right now. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is the program. You are here. We are here. We're together. You and me. Isn't it amazing? Today's guest is my old friend, D.R. Haney. He goes by Duke, and uh, he lives here in Los Angeles. And those of us who know him refer to him as Duke or occasionally the Duke if he's in trouble. And uh, he's the author of the novel Banned for Life and the nonfiction collection Subversia, which consists of pieces originally published on The Nervous Breakdown, uh, which is, uh, of course, my online culture magazine and literary community. Uh, so Subversia was published by TNB Books, which is the official publishing imprint of The Nervous Breakdown. It was actually the first title that we published, and uh, it's now available uh, where books are sold online in print and ebook formats. So I should mention uh, also some breaking news that is not in the recorded conversation coming up in just a moment. Duke, uh, after a couple of particularly difficult years, just recently uh, got a big break and sold a screenplay, which is very exciting news. It's called Goodbye Gandhi, and uh, right now it's looking like it might possibly go into production. So we're keeping our fingers crossed. Uh, Hollywood is, uh, is of course fickle and nothing's for sure until it's done. Um, you know, and I'm knocking on wood, 
because I don't want to jinx it. But the good news is, regardless of what happens, the, you know, the screenplay did sell, and uh, Duke has been pulled back from the brink. Uh, and uh, I asked him, you know, right after the screenplay sold, I asked him, you know, how he was feeling. And uh, in his uh, dramatic way, he told me that he was, uh, you know, he felt like a dog that had just been adopted like an hour before it was supposed to be euthanized. So uh, he and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Uh, otherwise, um, what's going on? I just agreed to teach an email workshop for a friend of mine. That's kind of a first that just happened today. Uh, it's like this uh, business type thing where I've got to teach email etiquette to 15 employees at this business uh, for $500 for one hour. So it's good money. It's easy money. And it's all going to happen virtually. Uh, and I'm going to do it uh, online, you know, with like PowerPoint or something. And uh, I emailed my friend earlier today, you know, just joking around. And I told him that for a thousand bucks, I would incorporate a sock puppet into my lesson, you know, just to throw that in there. And uh, what's funny is that he's actually considering it. He, you know, he's, he's actually going to ask for more money <laughs> just so he can watch me have to teach this thing with a sock puppet on my hand. So, uh, you know, and I'm like, fine, I don't give a shit. I will, uh, for a thousand bucks for an hour, I will, I will be the best sock puppeteer you ever saw. I will do voices. I'll sing. I don't care. Uh, so, uh, speaking of which, maybe I should do a live video feed of the podcast and have a sock puppet involved. You know, maybe that would create a rating spike. Would you guys like that? Would that, uh, would that amuse you? So, uh, otherwise I've just been working a lot. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm a little... I'm a little fried. Uh, I'm a little tired. I've been working on this, uh, this novel and I've been running on, on not a ton of sleep. Uh, I've made some adjustments recently, uh, to my life schedule. And I found that the only way that I can get creative work done consistently in my household with my particular set of responsibilities is if I get up at five and I work until, you know, eight or nine or on like a good morning, 10, and it, you know, it's gotta be that window. It's gotta happen then. And if it doesn't happen then, then it's probably not going to happen. And that's just how it is for me. So that's what I've been doing lately. And I have been making progress. So that's good news. You know, it's been very slow, uh, incremental, but steady progress. And, uh, the book is, uh, you know, it's a novel and it's about, uh, this guy who teaches high school or, or at least that's what he does at the beginning of the book. And, uh, he's on what can safely be called uh, like a massive losing streak. You know, he's kind of a colossal fuck up for the period of time that the book covers. And uh, he's in a state of life crisis. That's what I'm envisioning. And uh, no, and, and he does not teach with a sock puppet on his hand. I'm just going to say that. So uh, I'm not going to go over plot details because that's boring. And, uh, you know, plus I'm kind of superstitious. But I can say that what I'm trying to do is to write like a darkly funny book about a character who suffers defeat in a variety of ways in almost every aspect of his life, uh, much of it self-inflicted, most of it probably. And uh, it all happens in a relatively compressed period of time before eventually, you know, this guy achieves some sort of strange epiphany, some sort of uh, unexpected, uh, you know, denouement. If that's, how do you pronounce that? Like denouement? So, uh, you know, but the thing is, uh, I guess that, you know, the reason I bring it up is just that, you know, this week or today or whatever, uh, I'm, I'm concerned as I look at what I've written, that it might be too bleak or, or just plain ridiculous, you know, for this much defeat for one man. And, uh, I wonder, you know, if someone read it, if they would see the humor in it, or if they would, 
simply think that uh, this is like excessive, you know, or, or possibly weird. So for me, it's kind of funny, you know, it's like wincingly funny in that way that I tend to uh, talk about. And uh, the thing about it is that when you, uh, you know, or at least when I think about stories about uh, protagonists on losing streaks, it seems like they're usually designed to make the reader feel like a winner, ultimately. Uh, you know what I mean? It's, it's almost a it's almost uh, like this heroic level of redemption that happens, which is kind of a cheap thrill. You know, you read it and you're cheering for this person to turn it around and deep down, you know, they're going to do it. And, and that's not what I'm going for. You know, I, I guess I want something different or uh, more authentic, uh, at least to me, and uh, something less predictable. And uh, I also want, you know, I want it to be funny and I want it to be painful, like genuinely painful <laughs> and genuinely funny. Uh, and I want to capture effectively what it feels like to be in a state of, uh, of like true psycho spiritual confusion, which, uh, which I think might be a recurring theme in my work. So anyway, it, it's still early in the process. It's still, it's still brewing, it's developing. And so far, uh, what I can tell you is that it's about a character in crisis. It's about a character in isolation. It's about, uh, it's about a character in chrysolation. So there's a new word. And, and you know what? That really should be a new word. I think I just made up a new word. Uh, it seems like a kind of a fitting word for contemporary existence uh, where someone comes up to you and says, you know, hey, how are you feeling? You can just say, I'm feeling chrysolated. Uh, I'm experiencing a crisis of isolation. I'm experiencing an isolation crisis. I'm feeling chrysolated. You know what I'm saying? Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. A little overwhelmed. You were having issues with public transportation. <laughs> I was. You came over here on what, the Los Angeles, what is it called, the, the city bus, the, the metro? Yeah, the, well, there, there's also the dash buses, which run up and down Echo Park. They're extremely unreliable. I think the city buses are, I have come to learn during this period when I've been without a car, um, I've come to learn that the city buses are uh, more reliable. They, if, they, if they're scheduled to come at 115, they'll, they'll come around 115. But as somebody was pointing out to me the other night, <clears throat> um, there are an unusually high number of uh, crazy people on L.A. buses as opposed to the buses uh, of other cities because of because in L.A. anybody with uh, any money at all is um, 
uh, got a car. And um, so, you, you know, you sort of have to tend to have more of a, of a mix of the population. Um, it kind of waters down the insane factor a little bit, I think. So I've had a lot of issues with the insane people on the buses. Like actual verbal spats? Or- no, no. I try to keep my feelings to myself if I can possibly help it. But, you know, I'm really not very good at that. I just sort of, if I feel something, it, it, it just sort of emanates. I remember one time when I was living in New York on the Lower East Side, um, I somehow ended up standing on a corner with a bunch of preppies who were trying to score drugs. Uh, there was a black guy that we had met in the bar. I didn't realize he was a drug dealer, and I was just sort of talking to him. And I remember he said to me, as I was standing in the corner, he says, you know what I like about you, man? Your your face always tells the truth. <laughs> and I thought, oh, <laughs> it does? That may not be such a good thing, walking around the streets of New York. You might, yeah, sometimes the line can come in handy. Yes. I've, I've, I don't think I've ever... I've never mastered... Um, the art can it be called an art of disguising my feelings? So you're on the okay. So you're on the bus, and what? Give me a give me an example of a of a particularly memorable crazy. Well, this isn't particularly memorably crazy, but um, last night I was taking the bus home, and there was an obese kid uh, with his uh, slightly less obese girlfriend, um, very young kid, I think about fifteen, sixteen years old. Um, I could tell by his sheep-like eyes that he was really stupid. Um, I couldn't necessarily say that about her, but he had a pair of drumsticks. And all the way from where I caught the bus uh, in Hollywood to my place in Echo Park, he tapped arrhythmically on the metal back of the seat in front of him with these drumsticks. And it was—it really sort of had a, a Chinese water torture effect for me as the bus <laughs> as the bus kept moving forward. It it really it really did sort of feel like a journey to the end of the night, an endless night, a journey to the to the never-ending end of the endless night. <laughs> <laughs> did you say anything to him? Did you no. turn? You didn't turn around and like shoot him a glare or anything. I did finally. Yeah, I, it's not a good idea to do that. Because, um, you know, I had an encounter on a bus uh, a couple of weeks ago um, where a guy was pacing up and down in a really aggressive way in the in the uh, corridor of the bus or whatever, the aisle of the bus. And I sort of looked up at one point like, what are you doing? And the next thing I know, I was in some sort of prison altercation you know the guy came up to me he had fists the size of skillets and i had not seen his eyes until that moment and clearly he was deranged and he was like what you looking at white boy what you looking at white boy (laughs) and i was like man this is junior high school um except with uh, a psychotic which is not to say that there aren't psychotics in junior high school in fact i may have been one of them but um (laughs) Uh, so you, you gotta, you do have to be careful. I mean, eyes are weapons in, in a strange way, you know, it's not for nothing that we talk about cutting looks and, and, uh, that kind of thing. Well, no, no, but those people are like waiting for somebody to just make eye contact with them. They're just waiting for some sort of interaction or conflict, right? I mean, you can sense when somebody's just looking for, well, unfortunately, I think, (laughs) I think, 
I've been wondering why it is that so many poor people um, tend to have this tend to have this really they, they they're often I, I see this a lot on the buses a lot of really loud loud people I mean I'm told I'm loud um, but they're very loud their behavior is very ostentatious and and uh, it occurred to me that that I suppose in many ways really they're ignored completely ignored um, you know by the system um, by the powers that be uh, they don't matter so they develop um, uh, this really ostentatious behavior, really loud voices, voices that just can cut. I mean, you know, you can be on the busiest street in L.A. with and tra- traffic can be thunderingly loud in your ears, as I, as I have learned in the cell phone era. Uh, if I'd had any doubts before, and there are poor people whose voices can just cut through all of that. Um, and I think it's just it's just um, physically they have acquired these characteristics that make it impossible for you to ignore them. You know, again, when I when I was living in New York back during the Jurassic era, um, you know, that was the boombox time, and um, it was sort of a cliche um, that you know these young you know ghetto kids would walk around with these huge boomboxes and they would get on subways blasting them, they'd get on buses blasting them, they'd blast them down the street. I think that was, it was, it was, it's a similar thing. It's like, you can't ignore me now, can you? Right, right. You're going to hear me no matter what. Right. So how long have you been without a vehicle? It's been, (laughs) what's the, what's the time frame now that we're working on? Well, you were with me the night that my, my last, um, automobile broke down. Uh, I don't know, are we, can we mention the nervous breakdown here? Should I, of course, should I plug the nervous breakdown? Well, we had, uh, as you will recall, Brad Leslie, founder of the nervous breakdown. (laughs) Uh, and I am one of the contributors. Um, we had, uh, two contributors from down under who had visited, um, uh, LA for the first time. One of them had been to, um, uh, San Francisco before, as he told us many, many times on, on the nervous breakdown. And we, I was actually driving them to dinner to meet you. Uh, they were going to meet you for the first time. And um, the clutch went out of my car. And I knew, like, I, I knew at that moment, I was like, boy, I'm really in trouble. And uh, so that was in September 2009. Oh, right. That was the night we stayed. We were out on Sunset yeah, You stayed with me. You when? were a good, good friend. You're a good man, Brad. Let's see. <laughs> As if I had any doubt. It was late. It was very late. That it took the tow tro- truck until... 2 30 in the morning or something yeah. like that to arrive and you and you stayed there talking to me the whole time and uh that was the night that i told you the first time about my background in film it was something i'd kept hidden um i had not really talked about it yeah you were always sort of i mean you, you've had you had like this really uh lengthy period wherein you were acting and then you were screenwriting i'm still doing i'm still doing Screenwriting. I thought it's. I, I sort of feel like Al Pacino in The Godfather Part Three. Just when I'm out, they pull me back in again. <laughs> um, and it may be that like that with acting for me too. Um, I, I somehow get the feeling that that it will be, um, even though I I'm terribly uncomfortable in front of cameras now. I don't even like you know still cameras. Why? I can't stand the way I look anymore. Really? I mean, is, are you really self conscious about it? Oh yeah. 
You are. Yeah. I'm self-conscious, too. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. But, I mean, for somebody who's an actor, a trained actor, who did a bunch of films, I mean, you just feel like as you get older, it's worse and worse. I mean, you have uncomfortable, like discomfort with aging. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll be very honest about it. You told me to be really honest before you turn on the mic, so oh, yeah. I'll be very honest with you. I think we all do, but somehow we're we're not supposed to... We're not supposed to admit it. I think it's permissible for women to, to admit it um, to a degree. Um, but it, men are supposed to be shorn of all vanity, um, which is far from the truth. Um, and in fact, my next novel is going to have a lot to do with male vanity. Um, but I mean, you know, my it, it would be different maybe if I had begun, I think, as more of a character actor. I was always kind of this weirdly poised between being... You know, a juvenile. When I started, I was like uh, sort of a juvenile leading man type, but also I had a lot of those character traits and things like that. Um, and then, you know, you sort of, you know, you just you move through life. And I think if I'd had um, a career, you know, where I'd been really prolific, you know, if I had achieved what I set out to achieve, and if I'd had that period of, you know, five, ten years where I was really at the top of the profession, and you know, I was starring in really good movies and that kind of thing. I think that I would have been a lot better about about aging. I would have been like, well, I've had my time, you know. Well, what about, I mean, what kind of movies were you doing? You were doing B movies, is that safe <laughs> to say? I mean, how do you, how do you put it? Mm, I didn't just do, I did a lot of exploitation. I did exploitation. The first thing I ever did when I was 18 years old was a Canadian exploitation film. They just sort of found me in a stack of pictures and call me and they like my picture and they call me in and I went in and... and so those headshots do work? Mine did and everybody kept telling me that I had the wrong kind of headshot. Um, they kept... The style then in New York was to do um, a studio um, studio headshot with the studio lighting and, and I hated that. I really wanted to do something that looked gritty and because, you know, I wanted to be the, the you know the new Marlon Brando or, you, you know, my generation's answer to Marlon Brando. So I had sort of a grittier type headshot shot outside and, and I would show it to agents and they'd say, you're never going to get anything with that. And then these people came to town. Actually, they wanted to hire Mickey Rourke. Um, strangely enough, who hadn't, just right on the verge of blowing up. He had, I mean, he really kind of had blown up. But he wasn't really that well known to the public at large, and they were going through a stack of headshots, and they found mine in it. They just the, one of the directors of the movie knew a girl who um, was a theater director, and I had she had my headshot in, at, at her apartment, and the director saw it. And they called me in. I went and I did a monologue from Eugene O'Neill's Long Day's uh, Long Day's Journey into Night. Um, Sounds a bit like the Celine title I mentioned earlier, but uh, of all things, anyway, I did a I did a monologue from Eugene O'Neill, and um, they called me back like the next day, and said, "Well, you know, you got the part." This happened like right away. It amazed me. I was like, "Boy, this is really going to be easy." Right, exactly. No problem. <laughs> you know, um, I almost felt bad about it. I sort of felt like, you know, aren't, I'm supposed to suffer, aren't I? <laughs> and of course, I did. Um, I had no idea what I was doing. I, we shot the movie in Nova Scotia, and um, I was taking all these method classes, and none of it applied to what I was doing, but I kept asking questions about the character's background and all that. 
and uh, questions that were, were, were not at all pertinent to what I was supposed to be doing. And um, I, I drove them crazy, I'm sure. I was very temperamental. I thought that was part of talent, too, you know, throwing fits. Of course. People used to call me John McEnroe. <laughs> Literally, I was doing another movie a few years later, and I was throwing fits, and the other some of the other actors began to call me John McEnroe behind my back. So how many movies did you do as an actor? I don't know. I never... 20? It's, it's like notches on your belt, you know. If you're... You get to a point, hopefully you stop, you know, making the notches. Um, 20, I'd say, about 20. Yeah. 20, and then you yeah. went on to... to be 20 a, features. I did a lot of short films and, you know, things like that. Anything on TV? Any, like, tele- mm, like series, television, anything? No. No. That's the question that agents always ask you. I never liked episodic television. It was never part of my goal to do it, so... And then I went up for lots of TV roles, but I, I never really pushed to do them. Um, I always told my agents not to submit me. Well, they would anyway for pilot season. They would send me up for pilot season. I just never felt that television and I were very compatible. And then uh, the screenwriting thing with Roger Corman <laughs> happened how? In, you know, in, Completely in accidentally. Um, okay, well, I guess these are the origins of my... Uh, my my uh, literary life. Uh, I had an, uh, a manager at one point, and he was also a coke dealer. <laughs> and um, he was also an aspiring actor, but he had some experience. He had done some management before, and he kind of wanted to be an actor. And he'd see me in class, and he thought I was really talented, and I was. I'll be really honest with you, I was really good. I you know I had a lot to, to learn, but I had something. You know, from the from the beginning, I think, which I may have lost <laughs> now, and um, so he, you know, he actually got me my first agent, and then he said, "I want to manage you." And I like the idea of having a manager, but he mainly made his money selling coke, and so I would go over to his apartment, and we would just sit up like doing coke, literally to like my nose would bleed. You know, I would leave the next morning like you know with his bloody nose and stuff. He would, like, scarf down his own supply, scarf age style. And um, another one of the things he wanted to do is he wanted to be a writer. And um, there was um, a book that he was really obsessed with. It was the biography by Jeffrey Wolf, Tobias Wolf's brother, of a lost generation poet named Harry Crosby, um, who's a real um, 1920s um, decadent sort, um, very self-consciously so. Uh, American expatriate. He knew everybody, uh, had his own press. And my manager began to write the screenplay about him. And being this impertinent kid that I was, I read the the early pages and I was like, this is really awful. (laughs) And um, I went home and like wrote wrote some scenes and came back and showed them to him. And I'm like, well, this is how it should go. I, I can't believe I was that bratty or maybe I can unfortunately but um, but amazingly he didn't like just beat the shit out of me he read them and he thought they were really good and so he sort of forced me to collaborate with him on the screenplay <laughs> it was sort of like that was like my I was paying for his management services really by sort of going over and collaborating with him on the script and I was also rewarded with cocaine <laughs> which didn't do much for me at the time. I was naturally hyper. Um, I, I don't. I just did it because it was there to do. You know, that's sort of generally been my attitude with drugs. 
So, but you, um, you were never like an addict, or anything. you didn't have that compulsion. Oh no, no, nothing no. like that. I did. Well, it's funny that you say that because I have I had some friends who were really doing a lot of coke, um, and I had you know stopped. This was like a couple of years ago, and I did a few lines with them, and then I and I was like, boy, this is really good. I've forgotten all about this, you know. Um, and I was even having dreams where I was like looking for coke, like I was tearing my apartment up, you know, trying to find coke. And then on New Year's Eve of this year, I went to this party, and um, the party wasn't really happening, and I sort of blurted out, you know, this party needs some drugs. And the hostess said, uh, what kind of drugs? And I said, uh, you know, some kind of powder I could insert into my nostrils. And she didn't say anything. And then about an hour later, she says, come with me, Duke. And I'm like, it was like being sent to the principal's office. I was like, what in the hell is going on? I follow her back into the bathroom, I thought she was going to yell at me about something. I mean, it, certainly there was no sense that this there was anything romantic about my being asked to escort her someplace uh, private. And then she opened up this little matchbox and said, okay, I'm going to show you where I've got the coat. But I'm warning you, if this is gone, I'm going to know that it was you who did it all. Because it's only you and three other people who know where it is. Do you understand? I said, yeah, sure, sure. So that was the start of a, a night that recalled my, my youth with at my manager's house. I mean, I literally did coke until my nose bled. Ended up crashing, got up the next day, and I woke up, and that basically cured me of my desire to get back into cocaine. I just My head felt like it was full of chalk, which it probably was, really. Yeah, God only knows what the, what's cut in exactly. there. Exactly. So I that uh, really honestly I I was cured of my desire to get back on this drug by doing the drug itself. Um, it's um, what do you call it? Um, treating like with like homeopathic method, <laughs> not not recommended. Uh, but I've never been really uh, that addict. I don't have an addictive personality with substances. I have an addictive personality with thoughts. I'm very, I get, I'm very obsessive. Um, I don't like think OCD, can, like that kind of thing. Yeah, I do. I have OCD. Like what? Well, I don't. I have the ruminative part of OCD. Um, I have what they call pure O. I've written about this in the Nervous Breakdown. It's in my book too, Subversia. I have what they call pure O. Um, and at various points in my life, I've had these really morbid obsessions. Um, you know, like I was, I had these obsessions about, you know, killing people when I was 15 or 16. I got this, had this thought one night, you know, why don't you go into the kitchen and get a knife and go in and stab your family to death? It wasn't really a, a thing. It, it wasn't that it wasn't a thought based in desire. It was more a sort of. Um, moral um, dialogue I was having with myself, a, a, a dialogue about morality, about ethics, you know, what prevents me from doing this. And as I pursued this line of thought in my very immature mind, I couldn't, I couldn't really, I couldn't come up with an empirical reason why it would be wrong to do that. Well, did you, let me ask you this. Did you get along with your family? I mean, when you were at special... Oh, there was enormous tension in, my, in the household I grew up in. Why? Oh, enormous. Oh, oh, Jesus Christ. I mean, I mean, I love my parents, you know, uh, and I truly do, but uh, they're like me. They're extremely high-strung people. I mean, um, extremely high-strung people. They were not meant to be married to each other. I'm the reason that they got married, you know, sort of a shotgun marriage. I'm... Um, and um, 
So I grew, it was just a very volatile situation. Um, Screaming, shouting, that kind of stuff. I mean, well, was it violent or was it just kind of emotionally like- violent? There was a lot of them, but extreme, extreme levels of emotional violence that I grew up with. So they were yeah. fighting with each other, but they were they directing it directly at you, or was it just like the two of them kind of having it out? It sort of went all ways, really. I mean, I think they tried to keep us out of their own. Well, they did at the beginning. It actually was better before the divorce. They really tried to keep us out of their turmoil before the divorce. But then after the divorce, uh, you know, we got played. We were played one against the other, my, my uh, siblings and I. How many siblings? Well, uh, there were two then, and my father had um, two. Um, I have two half-brothers from my father's second marriage. So when did your parents divorce? At what age What, what age were you? Well, they separated when the first time when I was eight and they got back together again for a period. They tried to make it work. And then I guess they were sort of completely done with each other by the time I was around 11. So it's not a good time, really, for a thing like that because, I mean, there's never a good time. But it's that point when you know you're on the cusp of adolescence. And I mean, in a way, I was kind of glad to see them divorce because... Um, They clearly, you know, they didn't get along. I thought they'd be happier, but they just went on quarreling after the divorce. They still fight? No. They it's don't. over. Yeah. When did that finally peter out? After they got remarried. After, yeah, after my father remarried, my mom remarried. I think that the the um, new spouses were a big factor. And happy marriages. I mean, were they? More- yeah. I'd say both marriages are happy marriages. So how soon, uh, you know, how long did it take before your father remarried and your mother remarried? Is this like years and years? My or? father had a serious girlfriend starting fairly fast. So, I mean, he acquired her pretty quickly after He acquired her? What, what, is she, what is this, a stock option? <laughs> Actually, that might, be in keeping, that might be in keeping with the way he thinks. No, no, she was... Um, Somebody from the country like him. My dad's a real country guy. and um, So you were, you were raised in Virginia? Yes. Charlottesville. You realize that we, we never got around to that. I went on to this cocaine detour, but we never got around to how I came to become a screenwriter. But we'll go, we'll, we can come back to that possibly. We'll loop. Okay. We're meandering. All it's right. tangential. Sure. So uh, you're in Virginia. Your, mm-hmm. mom, your parents stayed in Virginia after they split? I mean, were they both within... Uh, like- they were both, uh, and then um, my mom. Right after I moved to New York, at what age? Eighteen. So you just left home and went to New York. Oh to, yeah, to be an actor. I couldn't wait. I was like, man, I can't wait to blow this popsicle stand. Get out of there. Yeah, um, but it was nothing. I mean, toward the end, it was you know it was better. It was better with my family. I mean, there was a lot of turmoil, you know, from. Throughout my childhood and, and early adolescence, but it, that had calmed down a lot. It was just more. I was really bored, extremely bored with my surroundings, um, which is is probably more of an, an indictment of me, really, than the surroundings. I, I think now. I had a lot of trouble adapting. Um, to what? High school society, high school society. Uh, you know, I grew up in an area with a lot of money, and I didn't have a lot of money as a kid. There was a lot of money, though, a lot of um, 
people with money, and they dressed well in ways that I couldn't afford to dress. And so it was this weird thing where I felt sort of between worlds. Um, my socioeconomic level was not at my intellectual level. So socioeconomically, I didn't really fit with um, the children of the academics in my hometown and the professionals. Um, but intellectually, I didn't fit with people from my own background. And so I felt very, you know, I, it was a kind of purgatory, I think. So how, what were you like when you were like 15, 16, 17, like walking the halls of your high school? Desperately trying to find ways to fit in. Um, Do you have girlfriends? No. Well, there were a lot of girls I was obsessed with. I had dates and things, but the girls that I really wanted to be with wouldn't wouldn't have anything to do with me. Why? Because I was considered odd, which I didn't realize. It took me a long time to realize. I didn't really, really, really realize. This, I, I think as sensitive as I was, and I, I dare say, I, I think I still am. I was redundant. Um, I don't think I really understood how I was coming across. I would get this feedback every once in a while, always proffered by girls who are very good at that kind of thing. Um, I remember that a girl I knew said to me one day, you know the reason people don't like you is because sometimes you're really friendly and sometimes you're really aloof and they can't figure you out, which is very true. I think it's probably true of me to this day. I oscillate. You know, I'm a bit, definitely, I think, on the bipolar spectrum. Have you ever been diagnosed or anything? No. Never? No. I've, all of uh, Every diagnosis, uh, all of my, I'm trying to think of the plural of diagnosis, but Diagnoses. I've self-diagnosed myself in every way. Like, nobody ever uh, diagnosed me as uh, puro. Like, I did that on my own. But I'm sure I'm right about all of it. Um, what about, what about like, uh, I mean, you swing. Like, do you have cycles? I mean, do you, can you detect them? Are you like, okay, so now I'm in a... How does it work if you are bipolar? And well, I don't. I, I, you know, I, I shouldn't have said that with so much authority because um, um, I was only recently told there is a spectrum. Um, sounds sounds official to me. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Uh, another novelist told me that, um, and you know, novelists never lie about anything. <laughs> um, but I was saying that I've I'd always sort of uh, thought of myself as being an undiagnosed. Um, uh, manic depressive or borderline and she said well it's a spectrum you know and i said oh i didn't know um and you know there's another novelist friend of mine who who is bipolar and and he he told me once he said yeah i think you're definitely bipolar i mean but he's spoken with me when i was at the height of like you know a manic episode which didn't go as far as his own but you know i mean i wouldn't sleep for two or three days and i just get really hopped up and i drink a lot of coffee and you know and i definitely have that flight of words thing that i think that well, what about medication? Characteristic what, of what about episodes? like medicating it or, or no. treating it? Nothing don't want to do that. No, no, you don't. Mm, no, okay. Because you know, I'm, I'm pure, very puritanical about things like that. Unfortunately for me, um, but not so unfortunately for I think the work I do. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm the way I am. I'm you know a very intense person. Um, you have and, no desire to like wind it down mm, or none. Mm, no. I think I tried to self-medicate with alcohol, and that's when I blew up a little bit. You know, like I put on weight from drinking a lot, but I don't like to do that anymore either. Um, I would try to calm down that way, I think. But, um, no, I wouldn't want to do that. What about, like, meditation or, like, exercise? No. Nothing like that. I don't want to do that. I'm not a mystic in those ways. 
at all. No, I was never. But I mean, even if, like you, you consider that mystic that like the the work or the TM. No, not necessarily TM, but just like deep breathing. <laughs> I, I I take a lot of walks. That's I mean, right thing. now I'm not enjoying my walks. I'm walking a lot, but um, you know, like I live really close to Elysian Park, and I like to walk in the park on the paths there, and um, and that's a meditation yeah. for me. And uh, I read in the tub. I read this biography of Robert uh, Kappa, the photographer, once, and it said that he read every day in the bathtub, and I thought that was so cool. So I start reading in the bathtub every day. As long as I don't read, I just lie there. You know, I like water. I really like being. I don't like beach culture, so I don't live over on that side of town. But I, I really like water. You I like swimming water in great. the ocean? I like swimming. I don't do it anymore. But um, why not? Mm, I don't know. Vanity factors, I'm sure, play in to this <laughs> also. Um, and uh, there's really no place to do it in my, you know, my area right now. I don't have a car, and and mm, I don't know. You know, there's. Hard to fit everything into a day, as you know, mm-hmm. perhaps better than anyone. Well, so let's let's try to cycle back now. Let's try to, <laughs> let's try to jump around a little I bit. I really feel like this is a therapy session. Well, you know, maybe I can't it believe is. people are going to hear this. Who knows? Who knows? All it, right. it, it is what it is. But, but I'm I having think, a breakthrough. I think it's I think it's relatable. <laughs> I mean, I think it's relatable, and I particularly want to make sure that you talk about the work that you did as screenwriter on Friday the Thirteenth, Part Seven. Oh Jesus Christ! Come on. Okay. That's well, notable. That's notable. You wrote one of the Friday the 13th movies. People are going to think I'm insane from this interview. I mean, I'm talking about all these things. Um, I really usually don't talk about. I mean, I, I've written about them a little bit, you know. But um, So it's, it's going to sound like a natural path leading from violent thoughts at 15 to Friday the 13th. I mean, it's possible that there is one. I mean, I was very interested in horror movies when I was around 12 or 13. I think that's typical of alienated kids. I was, particularly hu- I, males. Was hugely, I was hugely into them in like 6th and 7th grade. Yeah, that's the age. It's when you're on the cusp of adolescence. I think that I think that they, because, you know, it really does have to do with the hormonal charge. You know, the, the you know you for boys, I mean, you, you get that, you know, surge of testosterone, and, and that's a surge of, you know, basically it's like aggression being shot into your body um, or not into it, uh, generating this uh, source of aggression. And, um, and um, you know, uh, to look at horror movies, you know, uh, people suddenly sprout hair and they're secreting all sorts of uh, liquids. And, I mean, that's all very characteristic of adolescence, don't you think? Um, well, and then, the, the, I mean, the virgin who succumbs to temptation always gets killed. and you know. Right, yeah. But they're very more, there's a lot of, certainly there's a lot of, um, you, know, you know, moralism. Uh, in uh, in horror films, I don't know that it was always that way. So much, I guess it was. I, you know, a lot of the early film, films. I think the early films are very much in the romantic tradition. You know, Bram Stoker basically took these. Uh, I don't know if he was the first to take them, but uh, but these uh, Eastern European myths. Although the, the the myth of the vampire is universal, I think it's you find it in almost every culture versions of it. Um, and um, basically, um, you know, sort of dusted it off and, and gave it sort of this, this romantic attire, you know. Um, or maybe he began that process, which was finished by Hollywood, you know, with the with the, the sophisticate, the vampire sophisticate 
and um, the romantics are very interested in, in um, things like that um, and um, they're very interested in, in, in ancient cultures and, and um, the macabre and you know it's a sort of reaction against um, um, the industrial revolution technology rational thought and all that stuff um, primal emotion anyway I, I digress uh, greatly um so yeah, I was into horror horror as a kid, and I outgrew it. Um, and I never thought about it. I didn't see horror films at all. I know I I didn't. I'd never even seen a Friday the Thirteenth movie. Um, uh, to pick up where I left off, um, I got it. I had done this little screenwriting with with my manager in New York. And um, I tried to write plays, got nowhere with that. And then um, I got this call um, while I was coming down from an acid trip from a director that I had done something with at NYU. Uh, he was in the student program there. And he said, can you get on a plane tomorrow and come out to L.A.? I want you to start a Roger Corman movie that I've suddenly gotten. Um, Roger said, I can hire anybody I want to, so can you get out of here? And um, I did. I got out there. Uh, not the next day. Um, actually, I had to wait, a, wait for a call from Roger's office, and I was starting a new restaurant job the next day. I remember I went to the restaurant. I was trailing, as they call it, and when you're a waiter, I was trailing behind another waiter at the place. The whole day, and they had my number. This is before cell, number, cell phones, and so I was waiting for this call from Roger Corman's office to tell me whether I had this job. And, of course, the West Coast is three hours behind New York, and then finally somebody called, and they said, okay, can you get out here tomorrow morning? I said, yep. I borrowed the money. I got on a plane, got off the plane, picked up by PA at the airport, car breaks down on the freeway. So I went from living in Williamsburg, <laughs> you know, which, I mean, it was, <laughs> it was like so hip, Jesus, there's not even... I was a Williamsburg pioneer, you know. I was in that first, you know, wave of wagons rolling into <laughs> rolling into Williamsburg. I mean, there was like nothing there except for a, a few um, really daring artists like myself and a lot of people who wanted to kill us. <laughs> and um, because we were white and so therefore, you know, we have money, uh, which we did not. And um, so I um, had gone from that to breaking down on the 405 or whatever it was in Los Angeles. It was really a baptism by fire. And basically, we didn't have a screenplay for this movie, as I found out when I got out to L.A. Uh, so I started writing the screenplay. And then um, eventually I took over completely. Uh, I didn't want to put my name in the script because I didn't want to be known as a writer. I wanted to you know, go on being an actor that was the, the the purpose of writing the screenplay was to supply myself with a really good role as an actor um i wanted to create something that i you know a breakout part for myself um and to turn this into um a movie that would travel beyond the exploitation world if i could um and that didn't seem so improbable to me because roger had discovered a lot of really well-known people jack nicholson robert de niro but anyway, he really liked the screenplay, and he said, well, I'd like you to write another one for me. And I thought, okay, you know. Um, 
and I was talked into putting my name onto the screenplay, which is a story unto itself. And then um, one of the producers knew a girl who knew somebody at Paramount um, Pictures, and they were looking for, quote-unquote, a young writer to revitalize the Friday the 13th series. Um, they had originally wanted to do this Freddy versus Jason thing, and that had fallen through. And um, uh, I had met um, the producer's friend, uh, this girl, um, and she was very taken with something that I had said, I don't know, which apparently sparked in her the idea that I, I had the brains to go in and pitch for these people that she knew at Paramount. And uh, she asked me if I'd like to do it. And I said, well, I'm going to have, I don't, I've never seen one of these movies. So I rented them all and I sat there and like, you know, halfway into the second one, I'm like, okay, I get this. This is very simple. I know what, how this it works. It's this rotating dial of fornicating kids and, you know, they all do bad things, and one by one they're eliminated, and then the virgin remains alive at the end to do battle with the monster, and she prevails. And then we do this sort of like, but did she truly prevail at the end, you know? And uh, then it was just a matter of sort of um, giving it a twist of some kind, and so I had a bunch of ideas. I didn't have a phone at all but at the time. I was living in sort of this room in the back of a failed rock star's place on Beachwood um, off of Beachwood um, Road or Drive or whatever it's called. and So I walked up the street a couple of blocks to the Beachwood Diner and I called this woman at Paramount. Um, uh, I'd been given this number and I said, Hello, uh, I'm this writer. And she's like, Yes. Okay, what have you got? <laughs> and I, I wrote off this list of ideas I had. She's like, No, uh-uh, no, mm-mm, no, I don't want to do that. Nope. And then I came to this last idea and I'm like, Well... My last idea, you know, there's always a girl who does battle with this guy at the end of the movie. So what if she were telekinetic? What if she had telekinetic powers? And she's like, hmm, Jason versus Carrie. Hmm. Well, let me think about that and I'll call you. And uh, she'd call me tomorrow or something. So I went down there and I met her. And, um, and it seemed at that point pretty likely that I would get the job. I had to go back to New York um, to kind of um, sublet my place and because um, I knew I was going to be spending some time in L.A. at that point. I really wanted to. It was, I was really relieved to get out of New York at that point. I, I really was. And I loved it. I loved it very much, but I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't afford to live there. I was being pushed out like so many artists were pushed out. And um, if I may, if I may dare to call myself an artist at that stage, and um, the phone rang, I I'd literally gotten. I was walking up the steps. I just put the key in the door. I heard the phone ring in the kitchen. I went in. I picked up the phone. It was the lady at Paramount. She's like, "You got the job." So that was it. That was it. How yeah. long did it take you to write the script? About six months. And that was only. It shouldn't have taken that long. I mean, it's the kind. I really, I I could have written the fucking thing in like you know a week. And that would have been would have been adequate, honestly. But the development person had all sorts of ideas about we're going to make this a really classy movie. It's going to be unlike all the other ones. I went big production value, and I went through drafts and drafts and drafts and drafts of you know. And was, we had this whole Jaws angle at one point. It was a thing where the, some people were developing Crystal Lake and they were building condos, even though they'd been warned about the legend of this 
um, you know, teenage killing zombie um, slash animal that lives in the woods, whatever the hell he's supposed to be. He's really just Michael Myers, is, you know, all he fucking was, ever was, you know. Um, and um, the whole thing was just a ripoff, you know, uh, of that, you know, that, that whole thing. But, you know, listen, I shouldn't speak ill of it because I have done so in the past and I've gotten death threats from people, from kids out there that, that are really obsessed with these movies. And they're like, I hate that guy. He's spoke shit about Friday the 13th, you know. <laughs> so <laughs> he thinks he's too good. Did you get uh, did you get paid well for it? I mean, were you on the set while it was being produced? Oh, fuck no. They no. would never. No, I'm, getting, I'm, I'm moving into the part of the conversation where I become profane now. Apologies, listeners, all three of you. Um, hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> Thousands of people out there. Okay. Um, no, they would never have had me on the set. Um, of course not. Um, I've always likened screenwriters to um, sperm donors or sperm donors as far as um, the directors and the money men are concerned, you know. Um, you know, we knock up their ward or their wife or their daughter or whatever and then they, you know, they take us out in the woods and shoot us in the head and they, when the baby is born, they pretend that, that they're the one who fathered the child. Um they often will make changes, sometimes large changes, sometimes small ones, in order to convince themselves that that the material is, is, is truly theirs. You know. Um. So no, they didn't have me on the set. I was well paid for me. I mean, uh, you know, um, I had never made thirty thousand dollars in my life. I was paid thirty thousand dollars for the script. They bitterly complained about that at Paramount. I was promised more money, and then at the last minute, they. Um, they fired me. Um, it wasn't my fault. I had given them everything that they wanted. I'd jumped through all the hoops, and there were many hoops. Um, but I had a very ambitious agent, a young guy, um, who felt I should be paid more. And um, he went in and asked him for more money for me because I had just done some. I had done like 15 drafts or something. I was only contracted for four. Um, and, of course... Um, he made this demand to the producer, um, Frank Macusa Jr., who I had very few dealings with Frank. I mean, he didn't know that all this was going on. I was dealing with the development person. And then he went to her and he was like, what in the world is, is this guy talking about? And then they blamed it on me. They said, oh, well, we kept having him rewrite you. He had to do so many drafts because he, you know, couldn't give us what he wanted. But every draft I ever gave was an was an attempt to take these sheaves of notes that I would get, you know, and I would try to translate that, and you know, I tried to you know make sense of what they were telling me to do, and I, you know, I mean, they didn't know what they wanted either, you know. Uh, it was a very strange period of my life. I mean, because you know, I just I just moved out here. I was living on a porch. I was living on the porch of this house in Silver Lake. Um, with um, some punk rockers, and there was a girl who had fronted the band a certain ratio. Um, former expatriate who moved back to America was living upstairs and downstairs. Um, there were film students from Europe, and it was a great house. I was living on the porch, and 
You know, I was meeting new people in L.A., developing friends. I'd hang out with them all night long, New York style. It took me a long time to adjust to the whole idea that bars close at 2 in the morning out here because I was used to, you know, bars open till 4. So I was on that schedule, you know, and I'd want to keep going, keep drinking, you know, keep hanging out all night, pretty much all night. You're, like, you're a pretty big night owl. Yeah, I am, That's the way you run. Yeah. What are your yes. hours, like, typically? Well, at the moment I have um, a day job, which I haven't had in a long time. Um, so that sort of puts restrictions on, on how late I can stay up. But, um, so lately I go to bed around two or three in the morning. I probably wake up around nine or 10 next day, but if I'm not doing that, unfortunately I will sleep until about two. And then I'll probably, you know, usually begin writing really late, like one in the morning, two in the morning, maybe. And then I might keep, I might go until like eight or nine in the morning and then crash and wake up and start doing it all over again. That's not a bad time to work. Well, it's the best time to work for me because there, I've, there are no distractions. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's yeah. no phone ringing. There's no eating. I mean, you can just kind of, the world is quiet. It's sort of a screen. You know, darkness is sort of a screen that you can project your imagination onto. This is the way I've thought of it. Um, and, uh, you know, um, I always think of the daytime as the time of public life and nighttime as the time of private life. And I'm much more interested in private life than I am in public life anyway. Um, and, uh, I don't know, you know, I grew up in such a sleepy town and, uh, I would watch these movies late, late, very late at night on television and they would show the big city and there were these sparkling lights and, you know, and it would be like, you know, like, you know, Elvis would be driving down the strip, you know, and these movies, these late, late movies that you show the movies that show late, late at night and, going to these bars and there'd be like girls dancing on the bars and all that and I thought yeah that's what I'm going to do one day man I'm going to like live like that you know and uh, you know it's another reason I couldn't wait to burst out of Virginia where I grew up you know I was like yeah you know we're all going to get arrested and then we're going to be like dancing in the jail cell (laughs) and they're going to come in and say you kids settle down and I'm going to be the guy that reaches through the bars of the cell I'm going to knock his hat off and go calm down daddy O. <laughs> that's the way i thought it was going to be how disappointing life life has turned out to be <laughs> so get to how you started writing books well i uh started my uh, my i tried to write a novel when i was about 20 21 that's when i re- i really began to read really really seriously and i was about 18 years old um, because which, book, which books were, were in, most impactful? Well, Kerouac was the first. He was the gateway drug. <laughs> On the road? Oh, yeah. It had to be that. Well, actually, you know, I I just I mentioned this in Subversia. It, I had a, a, a bizarre, not bizarre, it's a sloppy use of words, uh, a, a word. Um, well, I had an interesting thing happen to me when I was um, 18. I had gone to Washington, D.C. to study acting, and I read an article in the paper about Montgomery Cliff's brother, and... And I just, all I knew about Montgomery Cliff was that he was associated with that method school that really fascinated me. And I I basically found out where his brother lived. It was in the D.C. suburbs. Um, his he, he was older by Montgomery Cliff by all, only a year. And he was married to Eleanor Cliff, who later was really well-known on the McLaughlin group, uh, that uh, TV uh, talking head show. Is Eleanor Cliff still alive? Yeah. She still she writes is. columns. I read her columns. Yeah, yeah, yeah she's still alive. Yeah. 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 
Um, Brooks, they divorced, I guess, not long after I met him. Um, and uh, But they had three sons together. I was vaguely thinking when I posted that piece online that maybe one of you know, Brooks Cliff's sons would you know, get in touch with me and say, wow, you know, somebody wrote something about her father. Um, you know, the kind of thing that happened to me when I wrote the Manson piece. I had all sorts of bizarre people writing to me about after I wrote that. But uh, anyway, I, I digress, as always. And you're referring to the essay that you wrote about Charles Manson. I wrote a piece about staking out the LaBianca house on the 40th anniversary of the, uh, the LaBianca murders. Um, yeah, and I got some very strange um, responses to that. Um, one of them was pretty unsettling and uh, then later I did a, a reading at Book Soup and uh, a friend of mine swears up and down that uh, Charles Manson's son was at the reading but I didn't see him it was a guy who had recently come forward saying that he, he had learned that he was Charles Manson's son and um, he had confirmed it he how'd, looked, you, how'd you like to discover that? Christ, scared, scared the fuck out of me, you know, because, yeah. well, it didn't, I, that's scared the fuck out of him. I mean, you know, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, like you're later right, in your right, life right. you find out that he's your dad. I mean, yeah. that's gotta be psychologically troubling. Exactly. No, I, I, I uh, missed your point there. Yeah, no, it would be, would be something. It would be something to learn that wouldn't it? Um, but, uh, but at the same time, I mean, if the, my friend is right in saying that he appeared at the, um, you know, um, reading, it's odd that he would do that. Uh, but um, anyway, no, I so I went and um, I to go back to the, the thing about Brooks Clift. I went and I met him and asked some questions about acting and he gave me advice and he took me upstairs to this room where he had um his brother's things he had a lot of his brother's things and um although i didn't see any of the things that i knew he had but i knew that he had them because they've been detailed uh, slightly in, in this article in the, in the washington post and uh and he and he was showing me these books that used to belong to to, to, to monty and and he said um do you read as and i was like well yeah you know sure i read i said well, what do you read and uh, I knew this wasn't going to be the right answer, but I said, well, you know, I, you know, I read books about acting, I, I, about how to make it and stuff, you know. And he just sort of shook his head and he said, no, that's not what I mean. And he said, uh, Monty read everything. And he went on to talk about the value of reading. And um, it made a huge impression on me, huge impression. Nobody had ever talked to me about books in that way. I was a bookworm when I was very young, but I, you know, moved away from it when I was a teenager. I just didn't have the, the patience to read at the time. Um, and, uh, of course, I was convinced that I was just temperamentally incapable of doing it. That's what all kids say now. I just, I can't do it. I, just, I can't do it. But, you know, they can. Um, I mean, my brain was just as fried by technology, you know, in my way as, as theirs are now. Maybe not quite as bad, but, I mean, I was glued to the television set when I was a kid and, was always on the phone and all that stuff, you know. So, anyway, um, and um, I read something, a little something about Kerouac, and um, and this book interested me. I asked somebody about it, and I thought, okay, you know, and uh, I'm gonna I'll, I'm gonna read this. And I read On the Road, and 
I had a huge, huge, I mean, that was, you know, the other huge thing that happened to me. These things kind of happened like one on top of the other because this was a book, the, the significance of it for me was that here you had these kind of guys of the kind that I wanted to be, I would have, you know, I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be this wild guy driving around, you know, and going to whorehouses and drinking beer and, you know, and they were doing all that. They were having these adventures and yet they were talking about Proust and they were talking about Shakespeare and they were talking about Hemingway and, uh, you know, these are, I think, I think there are three writers that are all mentioned on, on the road, but I know that, certainly I know that, that Neil Cassidy was reading Proust around the time that they did all that stuff. Um, so if it isn't literally mentioned in the book, then I know he was reading Proust at the time. But it was just this way of being. It was like a way of combining you know, this well-read mentality, which I was completely unfamiliar with, with this whole sort of way of being like a young man, you know, and I didn't, th I thought those things were incompatible. So the idea that you could be this, you know, red-blooded guy, but also have that kind of mind was really, it really opened a lot of doors for me. And um, so I just, from there, it was just, um, I just began to read a lot. I, re I re read Rimbaud, I read... Um, I mean, that first year, Rimbaud, uh, um, Jesus, I'm trying to think of all the other writers I was reading, Henry Miller, um, uh, Hemingway. I didn't like Hemingway initially, you know. I read Holden Caulfield then. I didn't read him in high school when everybody else reads him. You know, I read, I read, um, I read Catcher in the Rye then, after I read Kerouac. So it was like, it was just, it was a really, the world kind of opened up for me, the world of books, the world of ideas, a lot of ideas that just, you know, I mean, I drew really well. I, I, I was a really good visual artist or, um, you know, really good visually. Um, and uh, I just thought, well, that's art, you know, I'd never, I'd never had a discussion, you know, about, you know, what is art? Well, that, you know, just because you draw something, that doesn't make it art. I mean, it's quite, I mean, suddenly I was just, all the, the world of these ideas has opened up to me. And it was just my, you know, it's just like, it was, you know, the classic thing of what happens to people when they go to college, I guess, except that my college took place in the real world. I mean, my college took place living on the Lower East Side. And I had a roommate who was hyper-intellectual and, and we were always having these discussions and I would, you know, he, and he was older than me and he knew more than I did, but I would get in there and I would debate him and go, no, 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 I don't believe that at all. And just everybody I met at that time, um, not everybody, but I just met so many people who were, you know, um, intellectually inclined, intellectually gifted. New York was just brimming with these people. It's an Ivy League town after all. And it's right in the heart of the Ivy League. I mean, you know, all those people flock there, you know, and it's got NYU and I was living really close to NYU and I was acting in student films and a lot of those people were graduate students. I mean, they already had their degrees in English or whatever. So it was, there was just a lot of input that I was getting all of a sudden. It was really, really exciting. You know, you can only have that experience once, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I mean, and then to get from... That ex, you know, that sort of like early explosion where you're reading all those books and you're uh, tuned into it seriously for the first time to the point where you actually write *Band for Life*, your novel. That was written in Serbia, wasn't it? Or at least the started. first draft. Yeah, the first draft. Yeah. That, that was a nine-year process. Nine years, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, well, I, I was saying earlier uh, that I started my first novel when I was really young, and then I took another stab at a, um, at a novel a few years later. Um, I had the, what I thought a great – I had a big breakthrough. 
you know, as a, as a prose writer, I just sat down one night. I, I ran to the computer. Actually, I was. I, I, I don't. I just suddenly it was like I was going to vomit. I was actually reading at the time, I think, and I just, I suddenly had this thing I wanted to write, and I ran to the computer, and I just, like, sort of regurgitated. This voice came out of me, and I, and I, it was like seven pages of just this guy talking, and, um, and I read it over the next few days, and I showed it to people, and they were like, this is really good. I was like, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's sort of like something has happened, some something, some critical tipping point has occurred I've assimilated enough maybe that something is about to emerge and um, and so I tried to figure out a way to, to parlay those seven pages into a full length book and I spent about three years trying to do that and unsuccessfully it was very painful to abandon that book it's like one of the most painful things I've ever been through and I thought you know never again and that was at a point when I was really just completely disenchanted um, with the film business, with acting, with L.A., with everything that I had thought I wanted. So I was really trying to reimagine myself as a novelist, and I had a sort of completely different life in mind for myself. So when I abandoned that, it wasn't just a matter of abandoning abandoning a book it was a it was a matter of abandoning a, abandoning a whole new a whole sort of um identity that i had created for myself i had not lived the identity but but i it was like it was sort of like a you're dieting to step into a suit of clothes that you badly badly want to wear and and you you're never able to lose the weight or um something like that and um And so then I got pulled back into the film world again, um, somewhere in the middle of that, and went back to doing, you know, that, you know, with a lot more enthusiasm. I was making sort of more interesting films because all the films I made were not just B-movies. I mean, they were, you know, so-called independent films. They weren't very good for the most part. But, um, but you know, I was making sort of, you know, wackier, more offbeat, you know, movies, and I was a lot happier doing that than I had been with the kind of shit I've been making before. And um, I was co-producing some of them, and um, and then I bottomed out with that again, really. And I went over to Serbia to make this movie, and I was in my hotel room one night, and I was pacing around, and I had this idea. And it was really, it was another one of those, you know, moments where something just dramatic happens. It's just, I just had this idea and within like a couple of seconds, it just, it's like a rapidly multiplying cell. The kind of thing that you see in a horror movie is like something that just, just bumped into something here. But, you know, it's like something, it just expanded, you know, it was like this, you know, like the Big Bang Theory, you know, we it, the world began with a, it was like this, the universe began was the size of a you know penhead, and then it just you know expanded, and that was the way this idea expanded in my head. And I was like, "Oh my shit!" You know, shit! I've got to write this. And um, so it took me about two years to begin because uh, I couldn't find the form. And now I think I'm finally finding the form of my next novel. It seems to take it seems things take a long time with me, which is not so good. <laughs> good. Um, I'm not a glib writer. I can't just sit down and shit something out. I mean, um, 
It, I, a lot of thought has to go into what I do. You know, it's weird, but that doesn't. I'm, but it, but once the thought happens, it's like it's a very you know it it pours. You know, but something it's strange. It's not. It's not the process doesn't lack spontaneity. It just it just has to um, build to a point where that spontaneity can occur. And um, uh, and then so it was two years trying to find a form, and then it was. Um, you know, years and years of revision. I mean, I really feel in many ways I, I, you know, was kind of learning how to write. Unfor, it's embarrassing as it is to say. I think I'd acquired a lot of really bad habits during my years of screenwriting, and and um, you know, um, had my own way of punctuating and and um, and um, you know, like I got to a point with it, you know. Like five years in, because again, I had two years where um, I was trying to find the form, and then it just just flew out, you know, flew out. And then I spent a couple of years tinkering with that, and I was like, okay, I'm finally ready to show this around. And I was, and I, you know, again, naive as ever, I thought people were going to go, whoa, this is great, this is amazing. And I did get some of that, but I also got a lot of, you know, you know, you know, strict grammarians going, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, what do you mean? What? What? And then I took it back and I, and I thought, oh, they're right. And oh, now that they say that, you know, and I spent a couple of years and then I gave it to an editor in New York. Um, you know, this is what he does. I mean, he's a professional, you know, he's a guy I've known for a long time. And uh, he's, he was in bands. He was a musician and all that. And I thought, you know, and then he had, he came in and he just did that editing thing people do. Like, oh, well, now when you say hence, do you mean, oh, God. you know, you know what I mean? And yeah. and you can't do that with me. I'll go, I'll, man, I'll just chew that bone forever. So he, you know, had his way with the book and it's like, okay, I think it's fine now, but it wasn't fine. I took it. I was like, no, you've opened up a lot of serious ass questions, motherfucker. <laughs> so I took it back and was really, you know, weighing every, you know, word, you know, um, and for all that, you know, there are still mistakes in it, you know, but there always are, I suppose. Well, yeah. Well, I wish you uh, all the best with this new book. I know it'll well, probably be a long gestation but it'll be worth it in the end thanks uh band for life yes the novel subversia the my collection, collection of, of things i've put up the nervous breakdown yeah published by tme books both available now uh duke a pleasure as always talking with you it was a pleasure i uh, it was a pleasure brad thanks for having me all right all right yeah there you go that's the program everybody that's dr haney or duke if you prefer go get his novel band for life go get subversia which is available from tnb books uh you can check him out on the web at the nervous breakdown go over there and read some of his stuff it's really great uh you can find him on twitter his handle is at subversia and subversia is spelled s as in sam u b as in boy v as in victor e r s i a subversia and uh, he has a facebook presence as well don't forget that this podcast has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed at Brad Listy. The show has a Facebook presence. And if you want to email me, if you want to tell me a story or file a grievance, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. And, uh, uh, you know, go watch Friday the 13th Part 7 if you're looking for a good horror film. So uh, in closing, uh, I don't feel like I did a totally competent job on the front end of the show, trying to describe my conundrum with my novel, the one that I'm working on. 
Uh, and uh, something that I might add is, is that living in Los Angeles and seeing the variety of people that one sees on a daily basis uh, in this city, uh, all of the different socioeconomic classes represented, sometimes within five feet of one another. Uh, it's, it's just a, it's a large mix. It's a big collision. And what I find is that, uh, I, I, I've developed an acute sensitivity, uh, to how many losers there are in the world. Uh, and, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean that in kind of a, a cosmic, uh, sense. And, and I guess in that sense, we're all losers in the, in the way that I'm thinking of it. Uh, and I mean, in the economic sense, I, I mean it in a variety of senses, but you get what I'm saying. I'm not trying to, to, um, disparage anyone. I'm just saying that I see this all around me and uh, I'm, I'm attuned to it. So, uh, you know, and, and especially in these times, people are going through stuff, uh, difficult times everywhere you look, it's rough. You can see it in people's faces. Uh, you know, and what I find is that, you know, uh, it seems to beg circumstances seem to beg for big action. You know, things are, things are a little crazy. Uh, you know, we should try to do something big to fix it. And, uh, that's what I think I forgot to say. Uh, about this character, uh, this protagonist of mine is that he, you know, he isn't completely, uh, pathetic. He's not completely paralyzed. Uh, he is a colossal fuck up, but the book, uh, I think is ultimately about how he tries to take big action, but the big action isn't like quote, big triumphant action. It's sort of absurd, big action. So, you know, maybe that should be the title. I'll call it absurd, big action. And I should note, uh, that, that, that this absurd big action, uh, you know, it might not be advisable. It might not be advisable big action, but what's important is that the character does it. He goes for it. He rolls the dice. He takes big action. And I think that that, uh, you know, that right there is, is respectable in this world. I, I love that. I love it when people try to do, uh, big stuff. I love it when they take big action, uh, even if it ultimately proves to be quixotic in nature, uh, I guess I'm just a sucker for that sort of thing. I like it. And uh, that's what I think I was trying to say. So, uh, yeah, that's all I got for you, folks. I think I need to go to sleep. I might try that. I hear it's fun. Uh, or I might go practice my sock puppetry. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the program. I hope it nourished you. I will be back again soon with another episode designed to help alleviate your intense feelings of chrysolation. 